You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I need to say that the person I'm going to describe next is not me. Uh, but if you have a mind for narrative, if you have a mind for popular culture, and if you have a mind for trading, there is a viable business to be had, uh, not so much in understanding the project, but rather understanding the value of public's perception of the project and the promotional plan. Trading promos, I'm tempted to say trading rigs for the right, uh, completely cynical lone wolf trader can be an extraordinarily profitable activity. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Well, with gold now over 1800 US dollars and silver over $19 an ounce, uh, the precious metal sector continues to gain more traction. With me today is Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott US Holdings. Rick also is one of the larger shareholders of Sprott Incorporated, and Sprott profits when the precious metals go up. They also service the precious metals and mining industry and this stock is up over 150 percent since the mid-march sell-off lows and the recent news for the company is now they are listed and trading on the new york stock exchange so rick welcome back to the show and congratulations on the big board listing and perhaps we could start off our conversation with you sharing what is the significance of this nyse listing well thank you both for having me back on the show and also for your kind words concerning my employer. The rationale for listing on the New York Stock Exchange was simple. It is the deepest and most liquid equity capital market in the world. Uh, it is also a market that um, is a self-composed constraint for some investors, which is to say some U.S. institutional investors have a New York Stock Exchange, uh, a minimum listing requirement on the New York Stock Exchange. For ourselves, although we are a Canadian domiciled company, the vast majority of our revenues are in U.S. dollars. The vast majority of our shareholders are American people, and the vast majority of our customers live in the United States. So as an institution, we are certainly more American than Canadian. Uh, we report in U.S. dollars uh, we service U.S. customers and we're owned by U.S. people. The idea that we uh, ignore uh, a listing which would be in the best interest of all of our constituencies while at the same time allowing us uh, access to the deepest, most visible, and most liquid capital market on the world is silly. I believe you've told me in a past conversation, Rick, that your lending division was one of your most profitable uh, divisions of your company during the bear market in precious metals. So regarding the lending business, is it going to be tougher for that aspect of your business to be profitable in this bull market because I think it would increase your competition? Judging by the backlog that we're enjoying in the lending business, the lending business will continue to grow. The reason, or at least one of the reasons, why the lending business was so profitable in the bear market uh, was a, a lack of access to capital uh, among good projects. That capital is uh, less scarce now. But at the same time, with increased access to equity capital, more companies uh, can access capital markets to build projects. So ironically, we are seeing more projects now uh, than we saw at that point in time. 
The second thing that happened is our own access to capital. Uh, we lent in the beginning off of our own balance sheet and by syndicating uh, loan participations to some institutions and some high net worth investors. When we went to institutional capital markets to put together a fund, after some effort, we were able to raise about $500 million. Uh, our second institutional fund cleared through $800 million fairly easily, uh, and along with uh, committed joint venture partners, the capital that's available to us with a phone call now exceeds a billion and a half dollars. And our ability to complete larger transactions with syndicate partners is larger than that. So I would suggest that uh, our reputation and market reach, uh, our access to capital, and the fact that we can uh, present basically a full stack solution to uh, companies needing finance, which is to say that we can arrange a, a streaming transaction, a royalty transaction, a lending transaction, and an equity transaction puts us in a very enviable place to grow what is also already a highly profitable business. Ed Sprott, when you're analyzing the feasibility and pre-feasibility studies that these development companies bring to you when they're looking for capital, we see these companies often use discount rates of 5%, or if they're in a non-top-tier jurisdiction, maybe 7 or 8%, or if they're really honest, 10% or more. But uh, when you're doing your work internally, what type of discount rate do you typically apply to development projects when, when you're calculating your risk as a lender? It's really a function of the cost of capital, uh, but it's disingenuous, I think, for a pre-feasibility st stage company to use a 5% discount rate on the project when they uh, know that their cost of capital is going to be 15%. Uh, interestingly, of course, the discount rate uh, in the feasibility study is only one factor that we take into account. Certainly in terms of a credit discussion, that's an important discussion. For us, a, a more important criterion is who other than the borrower is the asset strategic to? And if the borrower had completion problems, who could we sell the project to and for how much in one set of circumstances? If a borrower is looking to borrow $100 million from us to build, let's say, a gold mine uh, in Ghana, uh, who operates gold mines in Ghana in reasonably close proximity to our borrower's gold mine? And how might this asset be strategic to them uh, in the event that our own borrower was unable to complete? We are not a loan-to-own shop. We are lenders. And so we need to know that if our own borrower experiences difficulty, uh, who uh, can and will step into the shoes of our borrower? That's probably a more important lending uh, criterion than strict adherence to probable discounted risk-adjusted net present value. And what are you using for commodity price when it comes to gold, the gold price? Because I sat through about 30 presentations, one-on-one -on -one at the Beaver Creek Precious Metals Summit last September when gold was about $1,500, and the overwhelming majority of them were using 1250 gold. Do you use the trailing average of the past two years for your gold price when you're looking at these projects? We use the forward strip. Uh, the forward strip is never right, uh, but it's the most honest of all forecasts uh, because it's the forecast that people are using their own money to support. And uh, Rick, you mentioned at the outset of why you chose to list on the new 
New York Stock Exchange for Sprott. When you're advising or you're invested in one of these uh, gold juniors that seems to be picking up market traction and they make the decision to jump from the OTC to the NYSE American or NASDAQ or even the New York Stock Exchange uh, like Integra announced um, last week, I believe, uh, what would be your advice to a company considering a move like this? People who have the ability to do it absolutely should do it. Why would you confine your listing to a comp- to a country that has 7% of the North American capital markets contained within its borders, which is to say Canada? Uh, the U.S. market has vastly more capital, vastly more liquidity, and is, by the way, underserved with natural resource listings. So if you have a choice, there are some companies that are too small that don't qualify. But if you have your choice... Uh, to uh, facilitate trading in a much broader and deeper capital market and one that is underserved rather than overserved, it's a very, very simple equation. Would you say, though, that some companies that are too small that maybe raise two to four million a year to, to ex- engage in exploration, that the listing requirements and the costs and the lawyers' fees perhaps would be too high, though, for them to for it to be worth it for them to list on a big board? Yeah, I think that's probably the case. But that isn't normally the thing that constrains companies, frankly. Uh, many companies are Canada-centric. Uh, either for reasons of sort of uh, incipient nationalism among the managers uh, or also uh, because the liability, the direct liability to officers and directors pursuant to Sarbanes-Oxley are much more extreme in the United States. Uh, It shouldn't be this way, but the truth is yield to director and yield to manager is often more important than yield to shareholder. In the case of Sprott, uh, we had objections among our senior managers three years ago uh, over the cost of a dual listing. And I suggested somewhat smugly, yes, you're correct. We don't need to be listed in two jurisdictions. Let's drop the Toronto listing. But that can become problematic for some juniors, though, right? If they're only listed in the U.S. on a big board and they're not listed in Canada, I've talked to people where they've object over investing saying, well, you know, the NI43-101 um, requirements don't apply to them. So should I trust this U.S. company maybe a little less? Uh, I don't think that if you look at companies like Uranium Energy, as an example, UEC, that being listed in the U.S. only is particularly burdensome. Uh, What it does do for issuers is it forces them to find different different capital markets participants. You can't just trot down to BMO or Haywood or Canaccord. You have to, in fact, access the U.S. market. It has been extremely convenient for Canadian management teams to walk four blocks to Bay Street or walk three blocks to House Street uh, and access... Uh, typical Canadian distribution during bull markets. And frankly, uh, the consequence of that is that uh, Canadian companies often have gone broke during bear markets. So certainly it imposes a hardship on managements. It makes them work harder. It makes them broaden their source of capital and broaden their source of distribution. It might cause them uh, to dr- to drink less at Joey's or High's uh, and have to uh, broaden geographically their source of libation, but it's a good move. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. 
Orn Resources is a junior exploration company with the appetite of a major, focused on finding the next globally significant discovery to create enormous potential upside for shareholders. It's one of the most aggressive exploration companies pursuing high-grade, scalable gold and copper deposits and has a premier seven-project portfolio including its two flagships, Committee Bay in the Arctic and Sombrero in Peru. With Orin's unparalleled technical team and highly experienced management with a history of success in advancing and monetizing exploration assets, Orin has been called one of the best in the junior exploration sector. Orin trades on the TSX and NYSE under the ticker AUG. To learn more, go to orinresources.com. That's A-U-R-Y-N resources.com. Rick, I've heard you say that smarter management teams you've observed in the natural resource sector tend to gravitate towards the royalty business because it's simply a bit better business model. How does uh, what you've said there compare or contrast with also your affirmation and willingness to finance non-royalty model entrepreneurs in the mining stage, in mining sector, such as Ross Beatty, Keith Newmeyer, Ivan Bebek, just to name a few? Well, the idea that the whole of the industry should be attracted to a better business plan would ultimately make that business plan a less good business plan as a consequence of competition. I would point out that Ross Beatty, as an example, did spawn a royalty business called Mavericks. Uh, and he was, of course, uh, attracted to and has executed the royalty model well. The truth is that we have been for 40 years active in all aspects of mineral exploration and production. What is important is that you um, match the right team with the task at hand. There are some management teams that do an extraordinary job as prospect generators, as explorers. There are other people that do a good job attracting advanced exploration projects, uh, applying new technology, new talent, new capital, and finishing them off. There are teams that do a good job of acquiring assets and building them and either operating them or reselling them. There are probably 10 or 12 primary ways to make money in the junior resource business. Uh, and I'm not going to say I'm agnostic, but I certainly have experience in all of them. The royalty and streaming business has a much better track record after, over the last 20 years than any other form of business organization. I'm not trying to say that other companies haven't made more money individually than royalty and streaming companies. I'm trying to say that the return on capital employed uh, and the return on equities across the board in royalty and streaming has been much higher than similar metrics in other part, parts of the business. But the truth is, if a Bob Quartermain or a Ross Beatty or a Clive Johnson uh, came to me with a business plan that didn't involve royalty and streaming and said, you know, I have a, I have a seven-year vision to build this company in the following manner, um, I would be very likely to say yes. <laughs> What would be your advice to newer resource investors that are getting excited about this precious metals bull market and they're looking at mining equities in the junior gold space? What would you tell them to look for be, so that they can discern between a genuine mining entrepreneur that's launching a gold company at this time while the market's hot, but he, he or she truly wants to build value versus a promoter that's starting a quote unquote gold company looking to in uh, attempting to mine investors wallets rather than find and build the mine? You know, it, I need to say that the person that I'm going to describe next is not me. Uh, but if you have a mind for narrative, if you have a mind for popular culture, and if you have a mind for trading, uh, there is a viable business to be had, uh, not so much in understanding the project, 
but rather understanding the value of the public's perception of the project and the promotional plan. Trading promotes, I'm tempted to say trading rigs, for the right uh, completely cynical lone wolf trader can be an extraordinarily profitable activity. I can't do it, so I don't do it. I'm one of those people who, with regards to popular culture, can't dress himself and doesn't go to movies. So my ability to understand the impact of a narrative uh, and the uh, sort of appropriateness of a promotional strategy is very limited. For me, um, I have to look at who the people are involved in the project and what it is about their track record that suggests that they will be successful with it, with that project. It isn't enough that they intend to be uh, perhaps in the gold exploration business. Do they have a prior track record of success in gold exploration? Do they have a prior track record of success in this deposit type? Do they have a prior track record of success in this or a similar jurisdiction? So you need to define success um, fairly tightly. Are their assumptions reasonable? Uh, in other words, their proposed sources and uses. Do the sources of funds that they describe actually exist? Are the uses of the funds that they propose uh, likely to be sufficient for the task that they propose? What is the uh, percentage of money raised that would go to general and administrative expense rather than going in the ground? How much stock does the management team own and what price did they pay for it? In other words, what is the lift? I've seen circumstances recently where management teams assign themselves 20 million shares for nominal consideration and then propose to allow me to invest a million dollars at 25 cents a share. Uh, saying that they were involved. <laughs> well, of course they're involved. <laughs> they have five times as many shares as me, and they haven't put up any money. Uh, so there are a variety of things that speculators and investors need to do, most of which involves common sense. Rick, what do you think about companies that, like, say, have silver or a large component of their project is silver, but yet they have the word resources, ABC resources for their company name? Would you, be, if you were a shareholder, would you be for them throwing the word silver, taking out resources and putting in silver just because that will attract a lot of retail capital if silver really heats up? I think if the company's ultimate mission is to become an explorer that is not commodity specific, uh, and if their first project is silver-centric, but ultimately they see themselves as an example, as epithermal explorers, I can understand the moniker resources as opposed to silver. But if, in fact, they intend to be silver-centric, traditionally in bull markets, there has been a scarcity of silver equities. And traditionally, uh, at both the retail and the institutional level, there has been a fondness for silver that makes silver equities in speculative markets outperform the rest of the precious metals complex. So to the extent that the company is going to be silver focused, I think it absolutely makes sense to tap into the silver franchise. This question deals with a hot stock of last week, uh, Vizsla Resources, that put out some phenomenal uh, grades uh, discovery there in their project in Mexico, and the stock went up over 100% on the drill results. And if I just pull up my stock chart, I see that I got up to at least 285, if not higher. 
But then they did a financing at Canadian, and I'm speaking in Canadian dollars, uh, Canadian 187 per unit with a, a warrant at 240. So both the warrant and the underlying share are were listed below what the stock ran up to after the discovery. If you were an investor and not the broker negotiating this bought deal, uh, would you be happy with this? And what would you want to see on the on the heels of a phenomenal drill hole? I, I need to disclaim uh, that, first of all, I don't want to give uh, name-specific investment advice. So a discussion of Vizla will be for educational purposes rather than a discussion that relates exactly to this issuer. This is a high-quality team, very high-quality people, and they have access to a high-quality project. I use the word access because they don't own it yet. Uh, they need to complete a fair amount of work, and they need to uh, pass several financial milestones. So it's important that investors who look at a company like Visla on an asset basis, understand that the only assets that they have right now are intellectual capital, a fair bit of physical capital, and the ability to buy the underlying asset. Uh, Visla was structured in a way that started the company off uh, in tight fashion, which is to say that the share float wasn't there, and it would be extremely susceptible to good news. It was also a company that was structured in a way that uh, people who have the ability to influence the market uh, were allowed in as reasonably early shareholders. So any good news that came would certainly be amplified. If you were a shareholder of Visla uh, and your average was one cent or 10 cents or 50 cents, the idea that the stock was now trading at $2.80 after what was, by the way, a truly spectacular drill hole, in a very attractive target, it would be in your interest to use the interest in the stock engendered by the result, uh, engendered by a very high quality promotional package, and engendered by the tight float to uh, leverage off the, uh, the willingness of the market to pay $2.40 or $2.50 and give you access to using capital that came in in an amount that was at sort of 10 times your average cost. So it depends on who you are from the point of view of the constituency which is closest to the officers and directors, that is to say the close and early shareholders, the large shareholders, and the people who enjoyed the promote stock, the action that they took was absolutely rational. From the point of view of the retail speculator who maybe paid attention to newsletter recommendations without understanding the options term uh, and without understanding necessarily the market capitalization or the structure uh, that came into this financing, the financing was probably less advantageous. So I think your response to this financing depends on who you are and what your interest is. Rick, I'd like to get your take on one more occurrence in the gold sector. I will mention companies, but I'm not asking you to specifically comment on those companies. Uh, just put that out there as a, as a preface. Argonaut and Aleo, two producers merged. And then after their merger, the new entity, Argonaut Gold, announced a $110 million Canadian bought deal financing, and this is for cash flow positive companies. My question for you is, if you were an investor 
holding shares of this entity, Argonaut Gold. Do you want to see them issue shares and dilute existing shareholders, even if they're going to use this for CapEx purposes? Or with gold where it is now, would you rather have them be a little more patient and use the future profits now with this higher gold price to reinvest back into their mines? Many questions packed into that. So let's try to deal with them one at a time. Um, I am extremely supportive of um, horizontal mergers. Uh, I The market has shown that scale matters. The market has shown that multi-asset companies trade at a premium to single asset companies because of the perceived lessening of risk. History has shown that management teams that have the ability to allocate investment across a range of assets, rather than having to force investment in one asset to maintain their salaries, perform better over time. And it is certainly true that mergers intelligently constructed lead to higher assets under management with lower general administrative expense uh, per dollar of either cash flow or AUM. So intelligently constructed mergers are almost always beneficial. And I believe this one is no exception. As to the decision as to whether to dilute or, or not to dilute, Really, it depends on the use of proceeds. If the management team can show that access to capital now, two or three years out, is accretive to risk-adjusted net present value on a per-share basis or accretive to free cash flow per share on a per-share basis, then uh, it is an intelligent decision. If, however, the company is issuing shares to raise cash, uh, simply to increase the mass of AUM uh, and the certainty of salary for the management team, these are bad circumstances. There is not one uh, one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, people who are shareholders of companies like Argonaut and Alio need to be present on the quarterly conference call, and they need to be uh, vocal with management in saying, uh, I understand the rationale for the merger. I support the rationale for the merger. Could you please lay out for me the development proposals that you see that you have in terms of priorities for the assets of the new company? And could you also, if you propose to do an equity financing, explain how the dilution in the equity financing that we suffer now, will benefit us in terms of higher net asset value and higher free cash flow per share two years from now or three years from now. In other words, discuss the net present value per share implication of the financings. Most retail investors and frankly, most institutional investors live for the quarter <laughs> and most investment bankers live for the fee. So the questions that I've described to you seldom come up in the conversation. The question that most shareholders seem to ask themselves is, where will the stock be two weeks from now? Uh, a question that frankly can't be answered with any certainty and as a consequence is fairly irrelevant. Rick, thank you for that thorough and educational answer. And before you leave, I should have you touch on the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium, which because of the whole uh, COVID crisis is now going virtual. Please bring us up to date on this. Well, thanks for the opportunity to do that. Many of your listeners know that for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years, uh, we and predecessors have put on a conference in Vancouver, the Natural Resources Investment Symposium, uh, and it's been extremely successful, uh, even through the bear markets. 
Successful largely, I think, because as an example, any uh, exhibitor there needs to be owned in Sprott performance fee generating accounts, which is to say that we have vetted all the exhibitors. Unfortunately, Bill, <laughs> the fact that Sprott own it, owns it doesn't guarantee that it goes up in price, but it does guarantee that we know the exhibitors well enough that we've taken the risk to own them with our own money. We have also always attempted to spend a lot of money on content and bring people a wide range of speakers. Both gurus, the Daniela Dina Martino Booths, the Jim Rickards, the Doug Casey's, all of those, but more important, serially successful mining operators who can explain how their success came about and what the lessons that they've learned building mining companies can affect the way that our attendees manage their own portfolios. What's different this year is, of course, as a consequence of this damned virus, uh, that we can't all be together in Vancouver, enjoying the wonderful summer, summer weather and taking harbor cruises and things like that. This will be a, virtu a virtual conference, an online uh, conference. Two things about that. What we'll be missing is the organic part of the conference, where attendees, high net worth, smart in individuals get to talk to each other, and where they can get candid, off-the-cuff remarks from the exhibitors and speakers, as an example uh, on the boat cruises, where I ply all parties with alcohol and a chance to simulate candid discussion. What's good about this, however, is, first of all, I cut about $400,000 in structural cost out of the conference, hospitality, travel, uh, lodging, which allows me to spend more money on content, uh, on intellectual capital. The second thing is it frees us from the tyranny of time in the sense that to uh, Many attendees have told us over years that one problem with the conference is that there would be four workshops taking place simultaneously, and the attendee wanted to uh, be at two or three and had trouble making up his or her mind where to be. In this circumstance, with a virtual conference, you can attend those workshops um, either sequentially, one after the other, or online toggling back and forth between them as you see fit. So we have been able to make real improvements in the formal content of the conference. Now, we've also made substantial investments in technology for the conference, largely by watching uh, and attending video conferences that have gone on before us. And I'm pretty confident that this technology will work. But what I'd like to say to your listeners, Bill, is the following. I'm going to make this riskless. Uh, if anybody becomes a paid attendee for this conference and believes at the end of the conference that he or she has not got their money's worth, I will refund personally 100% of the attendance fee. Now, I'm not saying to people this is a free conference, that all you have to do is ask for your money back. You have to say, preferably in an email, specifically why you don't believe you got your money's worth. But the truth is, anybody who attends this conference and doesn't believe that they got their money's worth will get a full refund from me. So the risk associated with the content and the risk associated with the technology is mine, not the attendees. And the cost here, I'm looking, it's $299 uh, US dollars. And I will put a link to it in the show notes below. So make sure you click on that link and check it out. I mean, it's a risk-free proposition you've just laid out there, Rick. That's right. Uh, Risk-free to them. Uh, some risk to me. Yes. But the truth is I'm highly confident uh, in our ability with this range of speakers and this wonderful range of exhibitors 
I am highly, highly confident that this is riskless to me as well. Well, Rick, as always, uh, you've provided us with a half an hour of mentorship and discipleship here in natural resource investing. Thanks again for coming on today's show. Bill, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And I, I, I hope you're present at the conference, at least virtually, to enjoy it. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.